We've talked about this on the show a few times, but as a refresher, Dada was an art movement that was prevalent in Western Europe in the immediate wake of World War I. Faced with the dissolution of seemingly invincible social institutions, such as Tsarist Russia, Dada rejected concepts like modernism, liberalism, and capitalism. The artists affiliated with Dada suspected that, despite what authority figures dictate, it's highly plausible that human life does not have an objective or knowable meaning. With that in mind, art itself should reject logic or reason and embrace the absurdity of our existence. Dada peaked shortly before the Depression, but it has never quite left us entirely, influencing surrealism, pop art, and many other facets of public life. It also tends to make a bit of a comeback whenever the state, the church, or the business oligarchy that controls both of those things gets a bit wobbly in public perception. Absurdism predates Dada, and it'll keep going even without that label. That brings us to Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, a viral web series that found a big audience during a period of isolation, loneliness, and uncertainty about the future of human civilization. While ideally suited to the emerging platform it made its name upon, Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared speaks to elements of the human condition that transcend historical era. We'll be going into these aspects over the course of this recording. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me on this one is Rachel, and this is her pick. Yeah, it was my pick. I picked it because I am incredibly fond of Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, and Ryan had never seen it before, and this podcast hasn't had a web series as, you know, an episode subject. And, you know, I, I like puppets, and I like horror and I feel like Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared is a really good combination of them both. And I also dressed up as The Notebook for Halloween in college, so I had to do this as an episode. So yeah, if you had dressed up as Salad Fingers, we'd be doing that. I guess so, but I don't really like Salad Fingers. He creeps me out too much. Well, it's nice to know you have a line somewhere. <laughs> I usually do a plot recap, but for this one it seems not appropriate to the premise of Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. So this is just a sort of general outline of how these things yeah, go. Yeah, there's we're talking about the six original shorts, not the television show. That might be its own episode later on. Yeah. Each episode of the six shorts revolves around three characters. A yellow childlike humanoid with blue hair and overalls. A sort of like Ernie with the serial numbers filed off. Um, <laughs> He's like Ernie meets Elmo. There's an anthropomorphic green mallard duck with a tweed jacket. And there's a red humanoid. He's not a puppet. He's a guy in a suit with a mop-like head. And, and he, he's my favorite. Their names are never explicitly stated in the text of the series itself. But the fan community generally refers to them as yellow guy, duck, and red guy, respectively. The characters never refer to each other by any kind of name whatsoever, only by pronouns. The only other relation to any of the characters is yellow guy's father, Roy, who occasionally appears. An episode typically goes with the three main characters meeting one or several anthropomorphic... Things. Objects. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're always inanimate objects, like a notebook or a coffee maker or a ham or something. Who be- <laughs> or get- a computer. Or a computer, who begin a musical number related to a basic concept of day-to-day life, usually with an upbeat melody, similar to that of a Sesame Street segment. Then uh, it gets weird. As each song progresses, however, <laughs> it becomes apparent that the more 
moral or message contained within the song is going off the rails into nonsensical and self-contradicting gibberish, and that the teacher character has ulterior sinister motives. The climax of each episode is typically a plot twist involving escalating psychological horror, which culminates into gore and graphic violence. Later, as the series progresses, the characters begin questioning the nature of their reality and the bizarre messages of their teachers. Yeah, eventually they're just sort of like, what could be happening today? And they're like looking at every object, waiting for it to come to life. And the universe punishes them for their dread. Yep. It takes various forms. The very first one is a notebook that is supposed to teach them how to be creative. Let's get creative. And then there's a, the next one is a clock that teaches them about the nature of time. Yeah, that clock became a Tumblr sexy man for a while. For those of you who weren't <laughs> teenage girls in 2011. I was a Tumblrina. Not an extreme one. I took a quiz that said I was 61% Tumblrina. There are facets of Tumblr that would take innocuous characters and pop culture and turn them into objects of sexual fixation. Famously, the Onceler from the DreamWorks Lorax movie. <laughs> There's like a whole video about it. <laughs> yeah, there'd just be like exponentially more and more fan-created lore about the dangerous forbidden romance of the Onceler. And I mean, speaking as someone who is looking at this from the outside, it feels like it's young girls who are exploring their sexuality with a degree of plausible deniability in a realm of safety, because this is obviously fantasy stuff that can never actually happen, but they can work through some feelings while they're doing that. Uh, I am broadly speculating. I'm not going to speak for those people, but that feels right to me. Yeah, it does still write to me, and I am not without sin. I participated in the Sherlock fandom, not John Locke, because John Locke sucks. But I do remember the clock being a Tumblr sexy man. And it's always surprising that it's the clock guy because he's tall and skinny. People be drawing him as Timothy Chalamet nowadays. Well, yeah, Timothy Chalamet is pretty, but he's also not threatening. Yeah, he looks fragile to me. Yeah, you want to feed him soup. Like a poor little orphan boy. Yeah, if your adolescent girl has been taught to be ashamed of her own body and you're a little afraid of sex, Chalamet's not a bad first person to have a crush on. No, not at all. I mean, some of my earliest crushes were, let's see, Mr. Spock, Data, and the professor from Gilligan's Island. Yeah. Uh, Very. Oh, yeah, and the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, the various anthropomorphic characters do take on certain elements, like the, the notebook is teaching you to be creative, but then tells you to stop being creative in certain ways. Whoa it's, there, friend, you might need to slow down. Green is not a creative yeah. color. <laughs> yeah, when I dressed up as the notepad, a bunch of like freshmen were screaming that at me, and I'm like, yeah! <laughs> and this was created by art students, so a lot of people postulate that uh, this is just the way the educational system works. It was like, okay, we're going to teach you to be kind of creative, but only in within this box in a way that's useful to us. But then we go to the other one where a yellow guy is being taught about love and it slowly becomes initiation into a cult. Yeah, it's like the Wicker Man for kids. Yeah, and it feels like they're love bombing him because they found him at a vulnerable moment and they're like, no, we can fill this void for you. Just just come with us and we'll, we'll give you this free personality test and <laughs> you can leave at any time. There's no obligation. And then suddenly you're feeding gravel to the <laughs> like, giant Easter yeah, Island head. Like, <laughs> Makes me laugh. It's like, this is Malcolm. We feed him gravel. 
And, but, so you, I have to ask, because we haven't really talked about this. So I showed this the first couple to you, and you had never seen these before, and you didn't know what they were beforehand? Yeah, yeah, I had no idea. I went in completely blind. Yeah, what did you think of them? I mean, you were laughing a little bit, and I was like, I was like, okay, thank God. He's, he's not freaking out and being like, Jesus Christ, Rachel, what is this? There was always the risk of that happening. No, I, I found ways to connect to it. Like, as I said with the cult thing, that brought up things that I encountered before. Because, I mean, the general stereotype about people who join cults is that they're easily led rubes and stuff. But that's not especially true. A lot of cults have people who hold PhDs, who have high-powered positions within society. They run companies. They're lawyers. They run doctor's offices. Tom Cruise! Yeah, guys like that. And, yeah, what happens is that you maybe go through a crisis and you're looking to find new meaning and this group shows up that can give you this meaning. That's why Scientologists always show up at uh, sites of disasters and whatnot. You're trying to find people at the lowest moment. Oh, ambulance chasers. Yeah, and that's also how white nationalists operate and various other groups of dubious distinction. Incels. It's just like everything sputtered out of control, so I want to find an authority figure that I can give control to. That's the common thread that comes up in that. And uh, that's essentially what they tried to do with the yellow guy, but he was able to be lured back because he already has a support network of his two friends. Yeah, so um, I asked you before we started recording who your favorite puppet was. Yeah, probably yellow guy. Why yellow guy? I don't know, he does make me think of Ernie, and I do like Ernie. Yeah. He's like Ernie meets Elmo. Also, he's just, he's just doing his best, and he seems to be the most sincere. Yeah. I appreciate sincerity. I'm from a very irony poison demographic. <laughs> um, for me, mine is Red Guy. He just always makes me laugh. Where he's like, we're going to watch television today. That we're... sounds really boring. <laughs> <laughs> for the creation and development of Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, it was created by two art students named Becky Sloan and Joe Pelling. They were studying fine art and animation at Kingston University. The motivation for the first short was fairly modest. Sloan and Pelling wanted to poke some good-natured fun at their art school teachers and just do something with puppets. <laughs> Framing it around a Sesame Street-styled musical number that devolves into madness seemed like a pretty good angle. Yeah. Sloan cites unintentionally weird British children's television program like Watch With Mother as an influence. Yeah, I, like, that was one thing that I appreciated when I watched. There's a uh, Northern Irish YouTuber named Brian Hollinger that we both like, and he had a video about Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, and I had a newfound appreciation for it because Ryan and I were both very American, and, like, we, you know, like, puppets from, like, Sesame Street and the Muppets, but British children's shows are really weird. And then, um, not to go on, like, a huge tangent, but if you look up the story of Jimmy Savile, there's always that dark undercurrent to some children's programming because it was used as like a hidden place for predators. I agree fully after looking up what some of those British TV shows they cited were. Blobby, like fucking Blobby, Jesus, he's scary. An American equivalent to me that's slightly before my time is Pinwheel, a Sesame Street knockoff that aired 260 episodes between 1977 and 1984. It is the very first Nickelodeon show, and it didn't quite have the budget for Jim Henson puppets, so their ramshackle attempts were pure nightmare fuel. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, if you look them up on YouTube, you'll know exactly what I mean. 
mean, Uh-oh. like I said, they, they stopped airing episodes like just before my time. My earliest Nickelodeon memories are of Eureka's Castle, which poached a whole bunch of Muppet people and had higher production values. Their puppets are actually pretty cool looking. <laughs> uh, pinwheels puppets. <laughs> the sketchbook in the first short largely came about because the crew didn't have time to make a proper little girl puppet like they planned. This led to an inanimate object motif that colored the rest of the series. I think that that's better. In Not to talk about the television show different, but there is a little, a creepy little girl and boy puppet in one of the shorts. While envisioned as a series from the jump, Sloan and Pelling settled on doing just the one short in their spare time. It simply wasn't realistic for them to do more with their study schedule and their shoestring budget. This is one of those things that they just shot in their dorm room whenever they had a spare moment. It's like, and you can tell that Yellow Guy's puppet is not the same in the first one as all the other ones. Like, he's a little bit better put together in the later ones, especially around his mouth. You can see that he's got some mouth trouble in the first short. And speaking of shoestring budgets, Sloan and Pelling could only afford some cheap lights that they found on eBay. <laughs> and these lights eventually overheated and melted the roof off their dorm room. Uh oh no! Oh. <laughs> Sloan remembers the firefighters being surprisingly cool about all the trouble, mostly just assuming that it wasn't arson and it was just a bunch of dopey art school kids who were in over their head, which is essentially <laughs> what it was. Uh, oh man. The first short became a word-of-mouth viral hit on YouTube. This is during basically the end of the period where some rando could throw something on there and instantly become famous overnight. Yeah. It doesn't really feel like YouTube's like that anymore, but it, it was for the first decade and a half yeah, of its existence. Yeah, I think the first one came out in 2011, and I remember hearing, like, green is not a creative color. Oh, whoa, that friend, you might need to slow down. And I was like, I don't know what that's from. And then my sister was like, wait, you haven't seen this? So we're like, we turned on my mom's laptop in the kitchen and we watched it. And I was like, holy shit, what the fuck is this? And I was like laughing and I was horrified, but I loved it. It was, I don't know, very different. There was a moment in the extremely recent past where like one day just around your workplace or around your dorm room or in your friend's circle, somebody would just be like, hey, you haven't seen that girl singing about Friday yet? Or you haven't seen Turn Down for what? Or um, Gangnam Style or shows? Shows. and the, Or Charlie the Unicorn. Yeah, I, I don't know. I started watching YouTube back in like literally like 2006. So like right after YouTube became became a thing. Yeah, I was I was there for Power Thirst and the Ultimate Showdown and all that. Yeah, all of those, you know, they were like or or better, 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 yes. Which recently had an anniversary and I was like, oh shit, I feel old now. <laughs> yeah, towards the end of the 2010s, YouTube altered its algorithm. So instead of viral ready short videos, the site started favoring longer form stuff and churned out content like lazily produced CGI crap for toddlers and also video essays and podcast uploads. That's YouTube's bread and butter now. Oh God, I remember listening. Some parent came into my job with co Coco Melon playing, and I'm like, no, fucking hate Coco Melon. Ah. <laughs> 
But as of this recording, the first Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared short has amassed about 76 million views. That's pretty respectable by YouTube standards. I mean, an elaborately constructed short film can still go viral, but this feels like something that Just doesn't is in the rearview mirror. Like, yeah. Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared is very much a beneficiary of its moment. Yeah, now kids are like, what do you want to be when you grow up, little Timmy? I want to be a YouTuber. The first Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared was screened at Sundance in 2012. Oh my gosh, love of, that. Yeah, out of competition. And Channel 4's Random Acts commissioned the second episode with Sloan and Pelling announcing a crowdfunding campaign in 2014 in order to complete additional shorts. I remember that. Tom Ska of Asdiff Movie fame donated $5,000 to the Kickstarter and got a producing credit for his trouble. I have thought of occasionally doing a podcast episode about Asdiff. I thought that might be something fun for Toby, but yeah, not yet. Looks like we're starting things off with Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. <laughs> a uh, 12-year-old American tried to donate $35,000 from stolen credit cards, but he was caught and the money was refunded. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sloan and Pelling promoted the Kickstarter by uploading grainy hostage videos of Duck, Yellow Guy, and Red Guy. Yeah, the monster from that video is really scary looking. The Kickstarter raised 104,935 pounds. That's pretty reputable. That's a lot. The last four shorts premiered roughly six months apart from each other between 2014 and 2016. Yep, I remember eagerly awaiting the next one being dropped. Out of all things, a Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared fashion line was launched by Lazy Oaf in 2016. I have not seen that, but I probably would wear something from it as long as it wasn't too expensive. Expensive. Sloan and Pelling made a TV pilot for an American company in 2016. Uh, it had a tighter storyline and it commented on current affairs a la South Park. It has never been aired. Sloan has expressed relief that the pilot failed. It apparently abandoned the ambiguity, claustrophobia, and creepiness of the web shorts, which he considers to be an essential component of them. I think that that is really important, and I will say for the television show, the claustrophobia, the creepiness, and everything in the short is just expanded out into 22 minutes. Less willing to compromise after the failed pilot, it took a while for Sloan and Pelling to find another studio. Channel 4 offered more creative freedom, plus an upgraded budget with access to professional puppeteers. Sloan and Pelling have both expressed pleasant surprise at how emotive the puppets are on the show. Oh, they really are. Yeah, a simple head tilt at the right moment goes a very long way. Yeah, the, the duck guy gets angry eyebrows. Channel 4 aired six episodes of Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared in September of 2022. It was delayed a few weeks due to the death of the Queen. Uh, it was well received. <laughs> Sorry, but that's like the most, that's like the most British thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were probably covering the death of the Queen and all the ramifications. Hey, the first Doctor Who episode came out on November 23rd, 1963. I mean, sure, it wasn't like an Amer a British person dying, but it's still like, JFK's dead. Why don't we watch this new sci-fi show. <laughs> yeah, the TV show was well received and it won a British Academy Television Craft Award for its production design. It's really good and the world gets bigger in like a good way. The puppets actually get to travel outside their house for good and for worse, mostly worse. 
Anyways, that brings us to themes, which is a fraught section for the subject under discussion. The community that is formed around Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared is defined by how enthusiastically it combs through the Byzantine visual symbolism of the shorts in order to form theories about what the creators are trying to say. Uh, Sloan and Pelling are hyper aware of this and consider the ambiguity of Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared to be a substantial aspect of its appeal. As such, they refuse to answer direct questions about their storytelling intentions and they encourage their viewership to come up with their own conclusions. While doing research for this, I read a fair number of interviews and a lot of them are pretty dodgy and one of them is just them answering questions as the characters on the show. (laughs) I like that though. I imagine that the increasingly surreal tone and rampant aesthetic diversions of the later shorts were very consciously put in there in order to galvanize the fan theories. I mean, I like the ambiguity. I don't go or like combing through them looking for deeper meaning. I just enjoy the ride. My favorite fan theory was uh, in the comment section for the Ryan Hollinger video. It lies in the ending of the final short. Uh, our three heroes seem to be at the beginning of their horrific journey, perhaps as a part of an endless Sisyphusian loop. They just manifest in their kitchen again after all the horrors and the notebook shows up and that's the end. However, one fan pointed out that the three are different colors. Not only that, after their reincarnation, but they are now the colors that they chose for themselves in the very first short about being creative, even green, despite it not being a creative color. (laughs) This fan optimistically proffered that this might mean that our trio of friends may have won a bit more agency this time, and perhaps their next encounter with the notebook will turn out differently. Honestly, I kind of like that, you know, that the cycle begins again and Red Guy is the one that pulls the plug, that restarts everything. And then, you know, they're all each other, their actual favorite colors, even green. I don't know, I, I kind of like the idea that they are kind of stuck, but maybe every loop they get a little bit more choice. I like it. Anyways, my takeaways. Uh, first thing I wrote down was neoliberalism, which, yes, I can feel your eyes rolling, uh, but <laughs> this is a common bugbear in pop culture discourse these days. Still, it comes up as often as it does because it fits, and we're all immersed in it. Educational children's television, such as Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, are intended to prepare toddlers for the world that they're going to grow up in. Uh, the shows focus on counting, alphabet memorization, and cultivating emotional intelligence, but neoliberalism thrives off of de- humanization and commodification. It stresses that anything that can be rendered transactional should be. It destroys community since isolation is more profitable, and it wants the mass of us to work as long and as hard as we can for as little compensation as possible. Just infinite growth in a finite world. In a neoliberal landscape, children are molded into complacent drones. They are made just smart enough to salute the flag and push the buttons at their eventual service jobs, but no more than that. Arts and humanities and critical thinking are a waste of resources and are discarded in favor of teaching one how to pass a standardized test. In the last short, Red Guy is ripped away from his only friends and locked into a drab, joyless office environment that would give Terry Gilliam's Brazil a run for its money in terms of soul-crushing banality. And he has to wear clothes. That was like the most shocking moment for the last episode for me is that the Red Guy has been naked the whole time. I think it's also very intentional that Red Guy's every attempt at personal expression or relationship building in this phase of his existence is instantly crushed in in the Meilu. 
Yeah, it's very different from everything else you've seen in the shorts so far, but, you know, it definitely has another different sort of horror to it. And yeah, all of the singing instructors, they're there to grind you down. The notebook pretends to teach you about creativity, but it's like, no, you do it this way. And the bee is like, you need to love, but in a way that serves the gravel. <laughs> His name's Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> or the computer at the end where he's like, pay attention to me. Like that, the computer after the first one, the computer is my second favorite. And then uh, the next thing I wrote down was existentialism versus absurdism. Existential is a word that is often used to describe don't hug me, I'm scared. It comes up in every write-up I found for it. <laughs> uh, this program very much operates with the assumption that an objective meaning of life is either unknowable or is illusory. Our trio, however, would very much like to find a meaning or at least enjoy a TV show or a chicken picnic without intrusion from the void. <laughs> They are, <laughs> they are either unwilling or unable to take the proverbial leap of faith and conjure a meaning that makes sense to them. This, to them, perhaps even unconsciously, feels like a cop-out or a half-measure. Or at least it would to an absurdist. Absurdists tend to think that existentialists have it all wrong or when they diagnose the condition, but their treatment is to just find something that works for you. And they're just like, why bother even doing that? You know that it's a lie. That instead of coming up with some half-baked meaning in order to distract yourself from the void, you should just accept and embrace the unknowable void as the only possible answer you will find. You know, no matter how much we progress in terms of philosophy or science, there is just going to be, at least for what we can tell, certain parts of our being and our universe that are closed off to us. And that's frightening. I've spent many a night thinking about stuff like that. And people much smarter than me who have gone up to the frontiers of human knowledge in order to push things maybe even an inch further have done the very same thing. There's just, there, there's more in the world than any one person can possibly know. And that's what we know. Yeah, a degree of resignation should come to it. Absurdists like Camus, uh, a lot of people think of them as people who are just mired in depression and dread, but by most intents, Camus was a fairly well-rounded individual who lived a happy life. He was into rugby and his reading. And I'm having an interesting time imagining him grinding somebody else into the ground in a rugby match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a rugby guy. Interesting. Learn something new every day. So yeah, perhaps the main problem with Red Guy in the final short is that he's unable to picture Sisyphus happy. I mean, he does, instead of like, I don't know, as the, the situation deteriorates, he chooses to unplug the computer. And I think that is sort of a chance, a change. He made that action, and perhaps thus once the cycle starts over again, they have that a little bit more agency. I have free will, screamed the ant into the nothingness. <laughs> I don't know, I think a little more optimistically than that. I don't know, what else did you want to talk about for, for this one? Well, that's everything I have written down. Um, I, I imagine you have things you need I was to say. Gonna, I was going to talk about how we did Meet the Feebles when it came to fucked up puppets. You and I both were not really impressed with Meet the Feebles. We were not. But then this, when it comes to fucked up puppets, we liked it a lot more. You want to like, elaborate on that? 
Well, for one thing, I think it was definitely more professionally put together, even though it was made by amateurs. It was a lot more tightly edited. I mean, the first short is, like, terrifying. Mm -hmm. it's, it's put together like a Swiss watch. I, I'm surprised that it was art students without much filmmaking And it's experience. only just a few minutes. Like, maybe three minutes max, maybe? And I think the main difference between Meet the Feebles and Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared is that Meet the Feebles is just... Bio-fascination? Yeah, it, it's a pizza cutter. All edge, no point. It's, it's trying to shock and offend you, and it's billing itself as this outrageous thing that is going to blow your mind with how raunchy it is, but it doesn't really have anything to say yeah, you once you get I... past uh, the superficial barriers of racism and titty jokes. I mean, I think the only thing that really I, I felt anything in Meet the Feebles was for the hippo lady. Like, I felt so bad for her. Like, stuck in this cycle of depression, a shitty job, she's overeating, her boyfriend's an asshole. She kind of goes a little nuts at the end. Can you blame her? No, but unfortunately that is such a small part of the plot. And that's buried in fat jokes. Whereas Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared, all of its horror and its transgressive elements is built on this foundation of trying to say something about the characters. And like I said, it doesn't state its themes overtly. It's very mindful about leaving a lot of things unsaid so you can speculate on your own. Which I appreciate. I think so. I, I really always am annoyed by all those YouTube videos. Speaking of YouTube, where it's like X movie ending X. Explained. It's like, just appreciate some good ambiguity because some is, you know, your, what is it? Your mind makes it real. Whatever you decide when you imagine, you know, the monster off camera or what does Gwyneth Paltrow's head look like in the box is better and more interesting than being spoon-fed by the creators. I mean, all film is a magic trick in some capacity. It is a bunch of still images that are put together sequentially at such a rapid clip that it tricks your eye into perceiving it moving. It's all smoke and mirrors, and everything is very consciously artifice. Especially when watching something that's all puppets. And I think if, if you're not, I'm going to assume if you're listening to this, you are familiar with Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. But for the most part, all of the sets are like puppety too. Like the furniture is felt and, and everything is constructed. It's not like, you know, the Muppets where Kermit the Frog can sit in the chair. It's like, no, there are puppets inside a puppet house. Yeah, it is the literal definition of postmodernism. It is deliberately fake and constantly reminding you that it's fake in the hopes that maybe you'll uh, apply this critical lens to other institutions in your day-to-day -day life after you're done with Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. And when Red Guy goes into the real world, it's jarring. And that is another layer of horror and existential thought. Yeah, meet the feebles, the don't hope me, I'm scared, yay. If you've only seen the web show, do check out the series. It's very good. Everyone everyone gets a little bit more characterization and like the you know, the dynamic between the three main characters is fleshed or I'm sorry, felt it out a little bit more. Uh, and Ryan's pointing his finger at me. Yeah, okay. yeah, you guys think you're going for that. <laughs> yeah, well I mean they're puppets. I mean there is flesh and meat in the you know, don't hug me, I'm scared. For the most part, everybody's a puppet. And on that note, thanks for listening everybody. Join us next time. <laughs>